Welcome everybody to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 26, 2014 edition. Today, my guests all will be presenting at the 25th annual, that's a quarter century, folks, annual Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference coming up on September 12th. We need to do it ahead of time, folks, so you can all still register before all the spots are taken up. It's at the Hilton Orange County in Costa Mesa. Dr. Andrea Tenner, my third and final guest, will go over all the logistics so you all know what to do. Dr. Michael Yasa, Dr. Andrea Tenner, both of UC Irvine, and Dr. Howard Federoff from Georgetown University all will talk about their work that they'll be presenting. Well, we'll be back um, uh, after a short break with Dr. Michael Yasa first with UCI's Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying with us here on Ask a Leader. My first guest is Dr. Michael Yasa with UCI's Department of Neurobiology and Behavior, who will be presenting his work at the September 12 Research Conference. His research interests are how the brain learns and remembers information and how learning and memory mechanisms are altered in aging and neurological disease. He earned his bachelor and master's degrees at Johns Hopkins and his PhD at UCI and continues his research here at the UCI Institute for Memory Impairments and Neurological Disorders. I'm gonna call it mine from here on in. Trained as neurobiologist and experimental psychologist, he examines neural mechanisms of memory from a network perspective using advanced neuroimaging and neuropsychological techniques. Among other functions, the Yasa Lab develops and refines neuroimaging tools to explore the brain's architecture at very fine levels of detail. That's the brains of, we'll talk about the critters and the humans. You could have possibly heard him on a number of media outlets when his, uh, he released his recent findings over the winter on caffeine. Michael Yasa joins me in Studio A today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Yasa. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here. So, Dr. Yasa, as we get into your research, would you consider yourself an, a civil engineer to the architect at the neuroscience brain site or the Shackleton on the trek toward the root of Alzheimer's disease? Well, that's a, it's a great question. And I think it's, uh, I'd like to think it's a bit of both. Um, so my lab really has two main interests. One is to try to figure out uh, what are the basic mechanisms in the brain that operate that allow us to learn and remember information. And, and how that changes in a, in a variety of different disorders. But with uh, Alzheimer's disease in particular, this is another particular interest in the lab where we're trying to identify what we call biomarkers or uh, things that change in the brain prior to getting symptoms such that we can determine um, with a fair degree of precision who would go on the path to Alzheimer's disease and who wouldn't. So those are really the two things that, uh, that we're after. So I guess my answer is it's a bit of both. Because the stakes are every bit I think as consequential, whether we're finding the, the pole, ev ev consequential, I mean, it is the holy grail, this Alzheimer's, sort of the essence of what's, what's driving it and what can stop it. I don't know which one's more important. So, um, well, so tell us what you mean by your investigating neural mechanisms from a network perspective. This is really fascinating. Can you break down for us this network how, where, how far flung from lobe to lobe? Just give us a sort of a, a and we do a lot of visual things on uh, community radio. I've done it with lots of art settings and all that. If you could give us a sort of a context of where in the brain you're watching all of these, um, this mapping going on. Sure. Uh, so it's actually a combination of things. So we're interested in uh, looking at networks from a variety of different levels. And a network can be as simple as, uh, you know, two different groups of cells that can be very proximal to each other. That's all? Very, very close. Or they can be two completely different lobes. It could be from the farthest two sites of the brain that you can imagine, but they're fluctuating together. They uh, talk to each other somehow, and we're after that kind of communication. So the way that we look at things is using human neuroimaging, and that uh, limits our ability to look at groups of cells 
details, but it allows us to look at things from a little bit of a broader perspective. So we tend to look at uh, neighboring regions, regions that are uh, connected either directly or indirectly, regions that talk to each other uh, in some context, for example, when we give somebody uh, some cognitive task that they're performing. Well, that's, that's an amazing range of uh, biochemistry that you're looking at such a small detail and, so, and a larger sort of anatomical frame of reference. So that's, you've got to be pretty nimble to move between them. Your colleagues don't maybe have that, uh, that kind of demand in terms of, of threading together these different uh, functions? So one of the things that uh, we've been able to do in recent years is improve significantly the resolution of the MRI scans that we acquire. Um, both structural scans and functional scans. So these are just uh, sort of static images of the brain or images that are somewhat moving. They depend on activity, they depend on blood flow and so on. And we've been able to enhance the resolution on both of those. So I think we do have uh, a remarkable degree of flexibility that we didn't have about a decade ago. About a decade ago. When you started, when you first walked That's into right. the lab. That That's right. Because you've done an amazing amount of work in your lab. How long, how long have you had your Yasa lab? That I'm not sure I could tell from yeah, that. <laughs> so uh, my lab started started initially in, uh, in 2011 uh, at Johns Hopkins, and we were there for three years, and uh, after that I, I came back to University of California, Irvine. Okay. Wow. They were probably sorry to see you head to the great weather here. Uh, well, the, the weather it does have a lot to do with it. <laughs> that, I, I, and I digress. So that's phenomenal. Let's, let's break down. I know you, you uh, offer on your website for your lab the, the sort of the sweeping components, but I want to because you're so it's so helpful here for you to break it down. Uh, there are three sorts of areas that you talk about. Let's first talk about that. We're we're talking about the neural mechanisms that support learning and memory. And you've uh, you're coming up with some new findings. Let's let's take what you're working on towards n those neural mechanisms supporting learning and memory. What you recently found out. It's just hitting the the media from your work about some. What was now, what's now a counterintuitive finding with repetition, which we all thought that was going to be the tactical approach to this war. That's right. Uh, so what we've uh, discovered uh, very recently, actually, is that repetition, even though it can have uh, positive effects on some components of memory, uh, so being able to remember the gist of what happens to you better over time, repetition is going to help with that, uh, it does sort of blur the details as time goes on. And the more that you repeat uh, the exact learning experience, the more that you blur those details. And, and that uh, seemed a little bit counterintuitive, I think, given uh, the literature in the past, but we uh, had hypothesized exactly this finding. Uh, about six months before because we uh, we hypothesized that every time that you try to uh, learn and the, the same memory again or try to repeat the memory, that memory trace that's encoded actually competes with the older ones. And this kind of competition uh, sort of mutually inhibits each other and then what you end up with is the overlapping bits of the memories get enhanced and the non-overlapping bits kind of fall apart. Okay, so it's, a, it's not... I know we talk about the pragmatic pruning of memory that's not being used, but this is sort of like a jam up well, of, in, in of some memory ways. data in some ways, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a jam up of the details. Uh, so uh, you t tend to forget the context of where things happened, when exact things happened, but you remember exactly what happened. So for example, if I ask you, uh, what is the capital of the United States? You easily can tell me that's Washington DC, but if I ask you, when did you learn that? Or where did you learn that? That might be a little bit more of a difficult detail because it was learned over multiple occasions. Many, many times you've heard this fact repeated. But that, and, and over your lifetime in the long-term, middle-term, short-term memory that you've worked with that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that there's always an emphasis on learning facts and knowledge uh, uh, is, is always based on facts. And that's okay if we lose some of the details. But for some things, you might want to keep track of the details. I'm kind of recalling medical school exams and things like that that have a lot of detail associated with them. Well, I'm thinking in terms of an Alzheimer's now diagnosed patient, you are taking this medication for this reason, these times of the day, with or without food or something that, that sort of that daily the uh, activities of daily living may really be confounded then with what you're finding about uh, repetition. It, it's certainly possible, although I, I wouldn't be able to speak to that directly just because we did our study in, in uh, young, healthy undergraduates. I think that oh, the jury is different. still out. Yeah, so I think we need to do the study in older adults and those with mild cognitive impairment and be able to determine if the, the same effects holds. But that's you handing the map out to the, um, the other explorers then to take 
take that to a, a different demographic sure. to try or, or out Sure, or we could do it ourselves. I'm or just not divulging yet. Oh, <laughs> oh so I, I sniff a scoop here on Ask a Leader. <laughs> okay, well, that's very interesting then. So this is your findings for, for younger brains. But so that's right. They're all the, the different age brains are pruning at different rates then with what they can handle. Right. Well, everybody is going to uh, sort of develop at a slightly different rate. But in general, we, we know quite a bit about the developmental process and, and pruning in general. And uh, I think during the adult phase, uh, it is sort of a steady lessening of synapses or uh, yes. you can call I it can pruning in some ways. Um, but and, and some of that is perfectly healthy and normal. That's not a problem. And some of it can be pathological. And that's what we're really after, how to drive that wedge between the two to determine what is really pathological and may become Alzheimer's versus just healthy, normal aging. And I found it really interesting from earlier workshops, the memory retraining kinds of devices. So are you working a little bit in concert with them? Or are we scooping something that's pretty privileged right now? No, no, actually, we haven't started yet. I mean, we've uh, considered the possibility, and we've talked with a couple of people, but nothing has materialized yet. And, and certainly there's a lot of practical applications that one can think about, but we, we just haven't gone there yet. Because I remember that they were talking about the motor cognitive connection to reinforce an act taken so that uh, I, I, it's a classic one and I don't mind mentioning this as a public service contribution everybody the where did I put my keys down did I take my meds where are my reading glasses that acting in that moment with where you placing that thing or taking that thing and clapping over your head uh, that you just did that act and that should reinforce it so there's probably that's you're going to say that's firing a number of lobes that you're you've been filming so you can you can understand that, that so far that device is still working Right. I think part of the reason why this mechanism can work is that you're actually adding uh, new new traces or new bits of the memory to it. So you're adding new contextual details. That's and that's what was missing before exactly. the repetition. Exactly. It's only repetition. That's right. It's a unidimensional or t two dimensional, and the the most the cogn the motor aspect is the third dimension that would make it a, a stable kind of memory. And, and certainly a motor can add that dimension, but there's also, we've known from the literature for a long time, that visual imagery can add that dimension. So the kinds of details that you can remember uh, get enhanced if you can visualize it and create sort of uh, animated pictures in your head, action shots and things like that, uh, that help you remember it better. Okay. Like people say, when they meet somebody, they, they give an image, uh, they assign to that face a name they just learned to some kind of a book, movie, uh, an object, uh, whatever, yeah, or they, tr they a, try an to idea. create exactly. They try to create as many associations as possible, and and the best types are the ones that have personal value to you. So things that you personally associate with, things that have an emotional connection to you, if you use those for associations, you tend to remember them better. Oh, and I remember that. That was something I learned at emotional piece, and I do want to bring this in because from those wonderful Alzheimer's workshops about. If a, an Alzheimer's patient in a pretty well processed along in the disease, if they're given a, a, a number of photographs, one of celebrities and another of family members, they may not recognize either of the, those sets of images, but they'll go back to the family members and they'll say, I want to know that person. Yeah. So that connection is so, so is it because they're drawing on the memory, it's short term, a uh, middle term and a uh, long term is and that's what provides so, uh, more it's not just emotional content but more context over right. the, so the th years. So those are the two possibilities, right? Is that they could have more experience with the family member over the years, so there is definitely more context. But the other way to think about it is that if you're using an emotional connection, then you're you're sort of you're using more of your brain. You're using the emotional system of the brain that seems to be a little bit more preserved from Alzheimer's disease, at least early on. Why? Um, Why is that? <laughs> that's another okay that's well, another well great Cordula question. can tell us that. Yeah, okay. That, yeah. All right. Well, well, that's I know that's off the mapping, but it, it'll that we'll find that emotional home office in, in your pictures at some point. We'll Certainly, see, we'll see that. If you've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Michael Yasa, professor of neurobiology and behavior at UCI Mind, about the work that he'll be presenting at next month's conference, the future of Alzheimer's disease research in nearby Costa Mesa. So um, there are there are wicked lot of things I want to ask because you've, you've been giving us even more context than I dream possible. So. In some of your publications, you use the term ground zero in Alzheimer's disease. What are you referring to, if this is not a trade secret? 
Oh, no, not at all. Um, so th that's a great question. Um, no, it's I you, that you asked the question. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, we're all in some ways after what is this ground zero, right? We're trying to figure out where uh, the root of Alzheimer's starts, where is the beginning part uh, of the pathological process. And there are many hypotheses as to this. People have talked for a long time about amyloid. They've talked about tau. But in terms of structural regions, the regions that first express neurodegenerative features, uh, it turns out actually from recent work that was done by my colleagues, Scott Small and, and, and his colleagues, um, that they found that the enterrhinal cortex, and in particular one part of Where the enterrhinal cortex, it's, it's very close to the hippocampus, okay, uh, which is, one which of is the another part zeros. of the brain that's very important for memory, and the enterrhinal cortex certainly is important for memory as well. So if you're missing that, you can't learn any new information. Uh, but the part that seems to have the very first site of pathology is this lateral enterrhinal cortex. It's a piece of the brain that is easy to identify in MRI scans. That tends to uh, thin out first and start to neurodegenerate. You can see that in all your pictures. Well, it, 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 if the person is advanced enough, you can actually detect it in MRI. If it's early on, it's difficult. So we're trying to develop techniques to be able to detect it better okay. if somebody's very early on. But the neat thing they also discovered is that pathology seems to spread from there onto other sites in the brain. And that's why it shows this terminology to call it ground zero because it seems like it was really the the inception point and from there on it seems like at least the tau pathology spreads elsewhere well actually i want uh, since we have dr tenner in the studio she's really here to talk about the conference but i i guess while we're talking about this i would like to draw on the expertise that is available while we're talking the technical the inflammation kind of work that you do and you've talked about in previous conferences so are you finding an interface with sort of the inflammation that's global or in 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 the cranium and and it having an impact in this particular part of the anatomy that Dr. Yasa is talking about is that can you uh, talk to that just a little bit sure. Dr. Tenner sure uh, that's uh, fine um, what we are seeing is of course inflammation is probably at that ground zero but it's also found in all parts of the brain in many different stages of Alzheimer's disease so it's really important to find out where it is initiated and then see what is the role of inflammation. Inflammation is going to be there because whenever there's injury or whenever there's damage or something wrong, the immune response is going to, the immune system is going to respond. And part of that is inflammation. Part of that is good, but if it's not regulated correctly, that inflammation turns detrimental. And that's, if we can identify that, then we'll know what's driving the course of the disease. We can prevent it or we can slow the progression. And that's why maybe early detection of might be able to give you a heads up on where inflammation is going to accelerate that predisposition from early testing. Absolutely. Okay, so er early is going to be one of the themes we're going to hear at the conference. Well, I think, thank you, Dr. Tanner, for uh, obvious, ob collaborating in this portion. We'll, so uh, if you just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming in labs, I hope, lab, uh, near lab benches all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Dr. Michael Yasa, Professor of Neurobiology and Behavior at UCI Mind. And he's talking about all the images he gets to look at. And I don't know, do you have any images that are going to be at that fabulous exposition at the Orange County Contemporary Center for Art that you may be familiar with that we're going to talk with those guests next week but they all have uh, all of the neuroscience men, uh, maybe 20 of them are going to have their images then transformed into original artwork you might if you don't know about that we're going to we'll talk about that uh, we'll announce that at the end here I'll yeah I'm going to have to wait and, and hear more about it this sounds very interesting it's totally yeah. right up maybe you're the one who's given over the images and you didn't know that <laughs> and they're, they're using them but uh, innumerable of your colleagues have presented uh, some graphic work that artists have run with and some very amazing ways. So that is a different plug way after, uh, before the fact. So um, let's, let's see. And you are also talking about um, these preclinical biomarkers that can distinguish between normal and pathological age-related changes so we can better uh, diagnose and respond. Can you give us uh, just a little bit of an idea of what you're working with there? 
Sure. So uh, what we're trying to do is, is use uh, what we think are completely non-invasive techniques. So I, I tend to use mostly MRI technology or magnetic resonance imaging. And uh, this doesn't involve any radiation. It doesn't involve anything that's potentially harmful. It's just basically lying in a giant magnet and allowing us to take uh, snapshots of the brain. And uh, some of those images, like I said before, are structural. So they're just static images. It allows right. us to look at um, maybe thickness, volume of certain regions. Uh, and other images are much more dynamic. So they change as you start to think about different things as we tell you to press buttons, responding to different pictures, and so on. And we can track the blood flow to different regions of the brain to uh, test sort of how active and how well uh, they are able to communicate with one another and so on. So those are the kinds of things that we're looking for uh, in somebody who might have some risk for Alzheimer's disease but doesn't have any symptoms yet. So let's say somebody has a family member or might have a, a genetic risk. Those are the kinds of people that we want to be able to put in the scanner and say, is there something about their brain that tells us whether or not they're going to go down the path to Alzheimer's disease? Well, I'd like uh, get you have you have your um, research clipboard out. What are some questions that you're asking them to activate uh, in real time to watch that blood surging in the different lobes of the brain? Sure. So uh, a lot of the time we actually show them pictures on a little video screen that we have uh, mounted inside the scanner. And uh, by looking at these pictures, we can ask them uh, to, to look at maybe pictures that we even repeat over time. And we ask them to tell us if it's the same picture or not. Uh, we can ask them to make very simple decisions like is it an indoor or an outdoor picture, for example. Uh, because it really doesn't matter. We just want them to pay attention to it. And, and we let their brain sort of do the work. And then uh, we can look for evidence in their brain of uh, processing these pictures, of remembering these pictures, of sensing familiarity about these pictures, and it gives us an idea of how their memory systems are working. Are there any emotionally uh, emotionally driven kinds of questions? Yeah, so uh, we've actually done some recent work on that where we've shown them highly emotional pictures, uh, pictures that uh, really stir up their physiological arousal. Uh, we haven't done this in, in older adults yet. We've just uh, published this in young adults, but we're now extending the study into older adults. I'm going to venture, I'm going to hypothesize, and I'm sure I'm not ahead of your game there, but uh, judging on how one's sensibilities change as they mature and age, I can imagine that those emotional questions will, uh, they'll be very different, that you'll get different reactions. And I'm just thinking the, the kind, in terms of how music uh, uh, connects uh, over a, a person's changing taste over their life. So um, do you play music in there to have them respond to that? Um, we have not done the study in the scanner yet. We've done it outside of the scanner, and we certainly do see changes as you get older. Okay. Um, and those who have more musical talents and expertise seem to actually have uh, better memory for musical pieces that are uh, not pieces that they've learned themselves. Wow. So there's some evidence there that music might even uh, have its own sort of networks that are wired in the brain. A safety net. Maybe. A memory safety net. Wow. Well, in your presenting your work at the conference. You're in, there's two tracks, and Dr. Tenner will talk about a lot of the logistics of the conference, but you'll be in the research as opposed to the clinical track. That's right. So, and you'll be, you won't be just talking to uh, neuroscience professionals. There'll be lay people. I may be sitting in on that, and I haven't decided yet which I want to go to yet um, uh, next uh, month. But what do you want the conferees to take away from what you'll be presenting? So the topic of my presentation is going to be about the use of non-invasive imaging as a tool for research. And uh, I really wanted to get across the notion that um, we do have tools that uh, can be used perhaps for early detection, but right now we are trying to develop biomarkers that can be used for clinical trials. And the idea is that if we have a drug that, that might or might not work and we want to test it out, uh, we have to be able to fill our trials with people who have uh, a maximal risk profile in some ways. Right. What we talk about, it, it's called enrichment and being able to determine these kinds of biomarkers is very important for enrichment and enrichment is key for the success of these trials so that's sort of the, the interface that I'm working with and I'm hoping that people will find it inspiring and will want to participate and, and uh, contribute to our trials and I guess that's one of the I could ask Dr. Tenner that too but one of the reasons probably your uh, one of your goals in those conferences is essentially recruit participants from different, from, you, I mean, who knows who's in the control group and who isn't, but it may be Dr. Ten, you can talk just to that, that you, that's what you'd like to see. Sure, yes. I think with more awareness of what is possible, then the community members can be able to choose, you know, appropriately as to whether or not they want to try to join in these trials. And I, um, it's hopefully that it gives them a role and an opportunity to um, uh, advance and help advance the progression of a cure or prevention treatment for this disease. 
So the more people that understand what's going on and, and what is involved in this, the better it will be. It becomes a technology transfer. Everybody sort of an individual sales goes back out into the community with all that. Correct. Too. Plus, perhaps say they want to be a part of a study. Right. Okay, well, good. Well, we uh, unfortunately, but maybe fortunately, because I know Dr. Yoss has had a lot of chance to talk about his caffeine uh, findings uh, over the winter. Maybe we'll just give you a, an um, opportunity to pitch uh, what you learned in that in a, in a summation uh, for the interview uh, before we go to a break. Dr. Yossi, what what does caffeine do for the uh, memory adult, uh, t- uh, the uh, d- d- dementia adult uh, brain? Let me just start by saying this research is not supported by any of the coffee industry. That's um, right. Although, and I remember you breaking down the way you like your coffee before those, uh, that's those right. interviews we've done that's with BBC. Right. Uh, very, very shortly, I think I can say that uh, we've been able to uncover uh, an additional potentially uh, beneficial effect of caffeine. In addition to all of the effects that we've already known, it seems to be able to enhance our ability to hold on to memories. After they've been learned, hold on to them and make them a little bit more resistant to forgetting. And we're at the very beginning of doing much more work on this now. Hey, well, that's great. Well, I thank you very much, Dr. Michael Yasa, for coming on to the show today and contributing. It's a pleasure having you on this morning in Studio A. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll be right back after a short break, and we'll bring on Dr. Howard Fedoff. We, we pre-recorded his interview as he was making his way through Brazilian connector flights, so uh, we'll be right back after a short break. Sweet honey and the rock. Here we go. My next guest today is Dr. Howard Federoff, neuroscientist and Executive Vice President for Health Sciences at Georgetown University and Executive Dean of the School of Medicine. He will open this year's conference. Dr. Fedorov's research interests include gene therapy and neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and prion diseases. He recently published research pertaining to potential breakthrough providing an affordable and predictive blood test for future cognitive impairment. Dr. Fedorov received his Master's of Science and Ph.D. and M.D. degrees at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He did his internship, residency, and clinical research fellowships at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and gained clinical experience at Massachusetts General and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fedorov. Thank you very much. Well, I thank you for uh, putting aside special time as you're in transit between Brazilian cities. Would you tell us about this breakthrough blood test, what it does, and how accurate it might be. The work that we have recently published was intended uh, to find a simple uh, and low-cost method based on an analysis of a part of the blood known as plasma to identify individuals who are over age 70, um, who are cognitively normal, but may who go on to develop either mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. And the test that we describe is a plasma-based 10 lipid test, meaning 10 fats, which was able to identify those individuals with approximately 90% accuracy so that in a period of roughly two and a half years, 90% of those who tested positive on our blood test then progressed to develop mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. And these are the trial. These were 70-year-olds and older, I understand? That's correct. They were, they were individuals who were over age 70 because age is the single greatest risk for Alzheimer's disease. And how old are the oldest, Dr. Fedorov? The oldest were in their 80s. And so we, we had individuals who were in their 70s and some in their 80s. Uh, and the idea was uh, simply to enroll cognitively normal community-dwelling adults be able to draw their blood at entry, do a uh, neurocognitive assessment, and then follow them prospectively. And some of them, uh, upon clinical follow-up and and neurocognitive assessment, developed cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. So then we had the basis of being being able to ask, at the time of entry, when they were normal cognitively, 
speaking, uh, was there anything in their, in their blood that may have heralded their subsequent, as we call it, a phenoconversion to either amnestic MCI or Alzheimer's? Okay. And what would be an example of, you said, that marker in the blood? Yeah. So I mean, we, we, we did not know that we would find that a, a set of metabolites, in this case their blood fats called lipids, would be lower in these individuals who are faded in that two to two and a half year period to develop a mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. But that's indeed what we found. Um, and then separately, once we had discerned those 10 lipids as being a possible predictor, we continued to enroll other individuals also, age 70 or older, and we asked, could we, could we in that additional group of individuals now validate those 10 lipids, meaning that we enrolled them, they were cognitively normal, we screened all individuals, and, and could we find the subset who had, 10 lower, had the 10 lipids lowered and would they then, on follow-up, develop neurocognitive abnormalities? And, in fact, we did validate with over 90% sensitivity and specificity those individuals. Dr. Fedorov, tell us what the advantage are of using the blood specimen versus the spinal fluid that was previously used in these diagnostics of early, early cognitive impairment. Yeah, I, I think, well, first of all, um, there isn't yet a parallel study using uh, cerebral spinal fluid taken by a lumbar puncture in individuals who are not cognitively impaired to demonstrate similar ability to predict cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. So that's important. That hasn't been done yet. And it may turn out that that uh, is equally um, accurate or maybe perhaps more accurate than our current test. But the most important thing is many people, including elderly people, don't like to have a needle stuck into their back. A lumbar puncture, uh, is, while it uh, can be done very skillfully, is still associated with some complications. Including with infe infections? Well, infection is a small risk when it, whenever one puts a needle into any part of the body, including into the cerebrospinal uh, canal. And uh, it can cause headache. Uh, it, there, there's a variety of complications associated with uh, a lumbar puncture. So we thought it would be preferable to be able to do this on a simple blood test. People are very used to going in to see their doctor and then the doctor order tests and they go to the blood lab and they have a series of blood tests. And that's exactly what we've done to develop our 10 lipid test. So at what uh, age were the sp spinal fluid tests administered on the patients? So all of the individuals in our study were over age 70. And so um, we believe that, uh, based on our current results, that these uh, 10 lipids will be useful in, the, in that setting, meaning that people have to be cognitively normal uh, and over age 70. And so are you not, though, uh, opening up? We're, we're, we're extending our findings, um, and we're um, getting ready to examine uh, using longitudinal uh, epidemiological uh, procured samples to see whether our tests will be useful in younger individuals. How much younger? younger? Than age 70. How much younger? Yes. And yes, well, we, we're anticipating, uh, we're trying to work through the details right now, but we're anticipating that we'll be able to take the seed of samples that might be as from individuals that might be as young as 50 years old. Um, and plus or minus five years to see whether when they were followed up longitudinally, some of whom now have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, was our test able to discern of that group that would uh, ultimately receive a diagnosis, would our test be positive? And we don't know the answer until we've done the work. Okay. Well, I'd like to know then, since at this point we don't have a particular treatment. We've got some sort of lifestyle recommendations that are that support patients pre-diagnosis and post. But I'd like to know what would be the next step after patients receive their results. What would those patients diagnosed with Alzheimer's do if no treatment exists? Yeah, I, I think there are a variety of uh, different things to, that might might discuss in that context. First is I think there is a uh, potential interest on the part of families to be able to use the information for, for planning. And whether that planning allows them to deal with individuals 
who are likely to become, based on the test result, cognitively impaired to either address things important to the financial status of the family, uh, to be able to transition from a current work environment, or just to basically do things that they would have been putting off to do in their lives. So that's one. Yes. Second and most importantly, as you point out, there is no disease-modifying therapy for Alzheimer's. And so we believe, and although this is still unproven, that individuals who are at risk are likely to be the group that most likely will benefit if, if we could enroll them in clinical trials. That individuals would be screened. If they tested positive, they then could be enrolled in a study where they would receive a, uh, a therapeutic agent or a candidate therapeutic to see whether that therapeutic would delay the emergence uh, of the symptoms either of mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. And what I was saying um, is that this is a new a type of activity. We've just recently written a clinical trial design where we're going to use the test to identify at-risk individuals and evaluate whether the preclinical administration of a drug will delay the emergence of symptoms. I think that is part of our future across the entire landscape of clinical trials. And it's one that eventually, and it may not be us, but it's eventually uh, the way that we will identify a disease-modifying therapeutic. Well, thank you. Um, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest here is Dr. Howard Federoff, Georgetown University uh, neuroscientist and executive president of the Health Science Center there at Georgetown, presenting his findings that will be presented at the Future of Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference to be held in Costa Mesa September 12th. I'd like then, I'd, or I want to acknowledge the work of your collaborators while we do this interview, Dr. Amrita Chima and Dr. Massimo Fiandaka in their work, and I, I think that's appropriate that we do that, is it not? Yes, it is, as well as Mark Mapstone, Dr. Mark Mapstone, who's been a longstanding collaborator, who's a neuropsychologist, and has been pivotal in the work that we've done. Oh, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for wedging us in your layover there in uh, Brasilia and being a part of this interview, and we wish you all the success. I look forward, Dr. Fedorov, to seeing you on the 12th of September here in Orange County. Well, thank you for being patient, and I look forward to seeing you as well. Take okay, care. thank you. That was Dr. Uh, Howard Federoff, and uh, we'll go into a little start station break, and afterward we'll hear from Dr. Andrea Tenner, who will talk to us about what is in store for the Alzheimer's Research Conference. We'll be back after a short break. <music> Welcome back to Ask a Leader, everyone. My next guest is Dr. Andrea Tenner, Director of UCI's Mind and Professor of Molecular Biology, Biochemistry, Neurobiology, and Behavior at the School of Biological Sciences and Professor of Pathology at the School of Medicine. And naturally, she's able to tend to all of this I say this about this, the really competitive uh, science uh, world. She's able to do all of this without a wife. But even though I digress, I do that with purpose here. Her research interests include innate immunity, inflammation, which she spoke briefly about at the, uh, the prior section with Dr. Michael Yaffa, Alzheimer's disease, cell surface receptors, and phagocytosis. Yes, I'm making sure that everyone's going to get their money's worth today. She's earned her Bachelor of Arts at the University of Dallas and her PhD at UCA, UC San Diego. Welcome to Ask a Leader and thank you for joining us in Studio A, Dr. Tenner. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you because of all the, the, the wealth of information that you bring. Well, at this particular, this 24th annual conference, UC, former UCI Mind Director Frank LaFerla will, in a manner of speaking, hand the gavel over to you. What is your charter as the new director of UCI Mind? Well, first of all, Frank has done an incredible job of branding um, UCI Mind and initiating the 
community outreach in a big way. I mean, it's always been there because this is the 25th conference, so there's always been community outreach, but we're trying to do a whole lot more about that, and that we hope that that's now going to be empowering the community as well as um, helping um, advance uh, our research and our drive to try and get treatment or cures for uh, neurological diseases in general. Alzheimer's disease is particularly important because of the large economic the scope of the disease as well as the number of people that are involved in that with over 5 million Americans that have Alzheimer's disease. Or and it's not getting any easier with the NIH ratcheting downward the financial support for everybody's chasing the, uh, toward the holy grail of their individual science projects. It's correct. Fields. It's correct. Well, would, what would you, Dr. Tenner, like to accomplish at the conference? Each year, you're bringing in an, a very diverse audience. You're bringing in lay people, professionals, clinicians, uh, all, all kinds of people. Uh, and it must be a bit of a challenge to present all of this uh, expertise to such a, a range of audience. How, uh, how are you going to handle that this year? It's, it must be an intriguing challenge. Well, it is a challenge, but um, the speakers that we have this year are absolutely phenomenal. They're uh, leaders in their field, but we've also chosen them because they are, in fact, able to unpack what they do and present it to the community, to an, 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 an educated community that is interested in the field. Um, but they're able to communicate that well, and that's what we've chosen these speakers to do. So we want to give the individuals in the community, as well as those that are involved with the disease, an idea of what actually research and the, the communication of that research uh, can do for the public. Okay. And you do it so well. There's going to be opportunities uh, for all kinds of interactions. There's, uh, you'll, you've got a lovely group of exhibitors uh, from a, a range of practices and uh, investigations so you, you can talk about how how you arrange all of those parts for uh, I call them technology transfers but there there's all kinds of uh, exchanges going on right so um, the, I'll just step back a minute and talk about the, the speakers again just okay, to back emphasize to right. that so because what we want to try and do here is not just touch on one field but to show the variety of of approaches that are really important to be investigated. And these approaches and the information that we get from these investigations have to be integrated in order for us to make progress towards um, curing this and treating this disease. Now, the, the other aspects of the conference that have to do with the exhibitors are telling um, and transferring information and giving um, those people that come to the conference what they what things that they can do now how can they deal with the disease um, as we know it now and how they can make their lives better and their loved ones lives a lot better for that so that's a big part of what this the exhibitors are doing is conveying that information because there's a lot out there that can be done uh, very so. Yes. For those of you who've just joined us, this is Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over the web on at KUCI.org. My guest for this last portion of the program is Dr. Andrea Tenner, newly appointed director of UCI's Mind. So uh, we've got different tracks. First, we have the general contributions, and then there will be a research and a clinical track, and the the attendees can choo pick and choose and sort of go back and forth over those because of the way they can break out. So I, I imagine you kind of marvel at how people know what they want and are able to take away so much from those carefully designed tracks. Right. We have, in fact, designed it so that people will be able to um, individualize what they want to learn and take home from this conference. In the afternoon, we have uh, two tracks, as you say, the research and the clinical. And while people are may only be interested in clinical aspects or maybe only interested in research um, aspects. We've also arranged it so that those people that are interested in the topic of imaging, the brain imaging, will be able to look at that imaging as it's used in research and how it's used in diagnosis. Similarly, we have some very innovative approaches um, to research that if people are interested, they can look at how those approaches are being taken in uh, in terms of inflammation, are being taken in the research aspect, but also looking at um, applications of things like stem cells in the possible treatment and in the clinical arena. So you can look at cross fields or 
in the same you know um, approach to clinical or research in the morning we also similarly we have genetics the genetic component that is being um, discussed by um, dr um, uh, Schellenberg and he's going to be talking about whether some of the genetic approaches that we've learned from doing all this genetic sequencing and everybody's heard about the human genome sequencing but now we're really using it to be able to look at some of the genetic components so he's going to show what we know from the sequencing and some of the suggestions that we have for this and then Kenneth Cossack is going to be talking about a population of individuals in Colombia yes. that obviously are uh, have some common genetics and how we're going to be able to use those genetics to be able to fast track looking at treatment possibilities and, in these populations. And Dr. Tenner, that Colombian community, yeah. they have a very, uh, they have a, a predisposition, it's an early onset yes. of the uh, Alzheimer's disease. Yes, it is. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of onsets, then, yes, you had it's, 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 more. it's early onset, and it's also pretty um, uh, a faster track, and oh. that allows individuals to be uh, allow drug uh, therapies and uh, treatment approaches to be um, analyzed very rapidly or more rapidly than the, in the normal uh, Ooh, population. I shudder. I shudder to think about yeah, what it would be like to participate in that, knowing and all that. So, the mild cognitive impairment yes. panel living with cognitive impairment with Cordula Dick Murke is one of a kind presentation. I've seen it year after year. Would you, Dr. Tenner, tell our audience about that special form that she so capably brings every year? Okay, yes, this is really unique. Um, it's absolutely a highlight of the conference. Um, what Cordula is able to do is to talk to people who actually realize that they have mild cognitive impairment and she is able to get them to talk about what they're thinking about, what it means to them and how it's impacting their life. And it's, she's assembled in front of the conference. They are marital pairs up Correct. to about four of them. Correct. Each one of them has been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. One of the, pa one one of the pair. I mean, each in, in each pair is one and so we have so tell us about what we are privy to because it's so delicately pulled off she is amazing in being able to um, get these individuals to talk about the things that everybody's very interested in finding out is how are they able to deal with um, the knowledge that things are beginning to be impaired and also to talk about what that means to their caregivers and how the caregivers have been able to try and recognize signs and um, help ease them through these stages. Everybody is very interested in finding it and Cordula is able to get these individuals to talk about it in their own words very effectively and as a as factual and as how things are rather than um, any kind of stigma or uncomfortableness that is uh, is not just not there in these in this panel and I'm always taken by there is an opportunity for everyone to observe how that mildly impaired in uh, impair in the marriage couples how they are presenting how they're processing uh, their disease through the kinds of requests put on them. They're speaking publicly and they're speaking about personal issues and you can see how sometimes their mind is going off in a tangent that might be a bit of a marker for people who know uh, Alzheimer's disease well. So that that's an interesting feature. It's it's there uh, for everyone to see, and it's a right. and er, every and it gives suggestions, and I think yes. encouragement. Um, it, there's a little bit of empowerment in yes. being able to anticipate things and knowing that yes, we can get through this in a dignified way, making the best of a situation. Well, we have so much more we could talk about the conference. It's time to get to the logistics as our show is drawing near to an end. The conference is on, as we said, it'll be a Friday, September 12th, and there are, it'll start, uh, there's, people can start meeting at 7, but 8 o'clock is when the, you'll, you'll be, you and Frank Valferta will be talking. You want to give right. us a, a few more logistics, or shall I go through all those? Um, you know, you can really get all the information on the website, and uh, you can have given that at the beginning, if you want to do the, that again. Uh, well, the website is going to be uh, at 
That's act.alz.org or Marcelo Soros as um, at the UCI mine. He can take your reservation for the available remaining spots at 949-824-9896. And this will be a full day conference. There is something for everybody throughout the entire day. And all of the academics, all of the clinicians, and people who are either caregivers or people who have survived an Alzheimer's patient, everybody is available for all levels of interaction. Yes, Dr. Tanner. Yeah, so I just wanted to emphasize that. So this is this is an all-day conference, but we um, it's it's spaced out, so you're not going to get exhausted. There's no, no. something for everybody. And the speakers there are very passionate about their work and about conveying that to the um, individuals at the conference. So everyone wants um, the conference attendees to get a lot out of this conference. So they can ask questions, um, a lot of interactions, come for it, learn, enjoy. And no matter what the vita is of the, the long and uh, unwieldy introductions to these amazing professionals, they are all there. They expect to be accessible to all of the people that are coming. So that is, it's absolutely, really, and it, people can get their continuing medical education units, or they can get their mainstream layperson's uh, download. So it's really, right. it's well done with 25 years of this, Dr. Tanner. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming down all the way to Studio A to do this. Uh, I, I'm going to just give a few announcements before we sign off. The announcements are these, uh, Managing Everyday Challenges in Alzheimer's Disease. That's, uh, there's another c- workshop. If you can't make it to the conference, that is on Tuesday, September 9th. And you can go to Ask uh, Michael Soares, again, as I said, M-P-S-O-A-R-E-S at UCI.edu. Ask him for getting a reservation there. Then today is the deadline for the initial comments to the Federal Communications Commission's uh, discussion consideration of the merger with Comcast and Time Merger. My two cents among mighty other comments submitted, I, this is what I said. Any consolidation with telecommunication industry, especially of the magnitude of the one contemplated between Comcast and Time Warner, will have predictable and unseemly outcomes. Future calls to the telecommunications customer service agents will become more maddening, more absurd, and less resolute. This takes a financial and mental toll on all of us. Please do not approve the Comcast Time Warner merger. And of course, I close in my little comments to the FCC with a thanks for their consideration. And oh, what the heck, I'll just mention that I'm going to be doing an extra show this week on Real People of OC, Public Affairs hostess Kimberly Martin's giving me an hour, her hour from four to five this Thursday so that I can keep my annual ritual intact of bringing on Irvine Unified School District's ASB presidents on before they start school next week. That includes uh, University High School President Gopal Vashista and uh, University High Vice President Spencer Ma, Woodbridge President Carolyn Vu, Northwood President uh, Dylan Huyen, and I hope to, and I'll be including the uh, Irvine President Brian Kwan. Yes. Well, that's all the time we have today on Ask a Leader. And I want to thank everybody for joining us. My guests for next week, I did give a, a little tip to uh, what we're going to do. There, We'll talk about an extraordinary installation at the Orange County Center for Contemporary Art entitled The Art of Stem Cells. My guests are going to be Kurt Weston, Henry Clausen uh, with the UCI Mine, and uh, Leslie Davis will take us through how scientists and artists made their graphics talk to each other. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Claudia. No complaints and no regrets. I still believe in chasing dreams and placing bets. But I have learned that all you give is all you get. So give it all you've got.